one is all things, all life, all love. We all come together in the form of energy, though we may exist on different vibrations. Our sound is one, our unity is one, and our life is one. Keep shining. Oh my gosh, isn't this fun? <laughs> um, 
Okay. So let me very quickly and urgently see if I can extend my time. I know I can. I've seen it before. All right, here we go. Bam. Yo. <laughs> I promise I learn something new every time on Blog Talk Radio. I learned that last week, um, last week we did have a show. I didn't post it because it was so just, it was so sketchy and bumpy um, that I just, it wasn't the quality that I wanted. But um, what was happening in my computer, for some strange reason, was um, the sound was not working. I think um, I'm on a Mac, a MacBook Pro. I want to say it's about five years, and I'm thinking that, um, well, definitely it needs to be tuned up. But I don't know, I'll do some research. I'm thinking that they just don't make them like they used to. And so... um, MacBook Pro, I'm telling you now, if you can't get it together, I am going to go out and buy a Sony. I'm going to buy a Sony computer and see what they're talking about. I mean, it's probably going to cost me more money in the long run. I mean, Sony's are pretty pricey anyways, but it's probably going to cost me more money in the long run because I'm going to have to, like, buy all the apps and buy all the programming system, Word, and, and whatever else I need to buy processing but I don't know. 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 So we'll see. But anyways, last week the volume, the sound, my sound wasn't working. And I couldn't tell if it was me or if it was Sister Savannah. And then her phone was kind of doing the janky jump, the janky dance. And um, and and then I was, you know, we were listening to some YouTube videos, and I couldn't really hear the sound correctly. So it just, it was a wash, basically. And so I pulled it. But um, Savannah will be back to recap her event from this Saturday. Man, tickets, it was a sold-out show. New Orleans represented and won Bronghome first place for the South. So got to give props to Nola and to the sister who rocked the mic. $1,500 $1,500 in her pocket just like that, just like that. <laughs> so, yeah, tonight we don't have a guest. Um, we're going to go ahead and finish this in our book, Lady of the Largest Heart. We've been hanging on to this one for a minute. It's time to go ahead and just knock it out, get it over with. This is such a beautiful book. I'm so thankful that um, that that spirit allowed me to come across it and recognize it. And I picked it up. I had no idea that Enheduana, uh, I had no idea she was the first poet. I really didn't. I think I was just looking for old-ass poems, timeless pieces, old poetry. Um, and I don't even remember exactly how I found her, but immediately I was intrigued. I think I, think I saw something about Sumeria, and, um, you know, that's definitely somewhat in my blood, and so um, I had to, you know, I went ahead and purchased the book. And, and over the course of studying this material and doing, you know, um, additional research, I found out this this is the first, not even the first poem, it's the first writing, the first complete work of writing known to, to, um, known to us. Of course, poems were around, I'm sure they weren't called poems. But, of course, they were around before this. However, they were verbal. They were, they were oral. This, however, um, 
as a remaining piece happens to be the earliest one that remains. And so I don't know, it's just a big freaking deal to me. It's such a big deal. Like this, this is just so potent and so just as a poet, as someone who I was thinking about this earlier, like I think I'm a poetry purist in the sense that um, I feel like if you call yourself a poet, if you call yourself a, a spoken word artist and you do not know, you know, anyone else other than Maya Angelou and, and, um, I, you know, and I guess, um, who is it? Maya Angelou and um, uh, Sonia Sanchez. I mean, you might even know her, but what's else with Nikki Giovanni? Like, if that's the only three you can name, Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, and and um, and uh, Maya Angelou, then you can, of course, still be a poet, and you might be a super dope poet. But for me, I'm going to look at you sideways, though, because I'm like, how can you possibly call yourself a poet? And how could you possibly have the audacity and the ego to 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 think that you can you can put yourself in the pantheon of the greats? And you don't even read their work. You don't, you're not even familiar with the black arts movement. You're not even familiar with the Harlem Renaissance. You know nothing about the beat poet, the beatnik poets. Like, I just don't get it. Me personally, I don't get it. I've definitely done my share of due diligence. Not only was I a minor, an English language arts minor in, in undergrad, I was part of the, I've, I've told my story before, I was inducted into the Literary um, Hall of Fame. <laughs> No, not Hall of Fame, but the Literary Honor Society, um, and and just through the course of my travels, I have I've just extensively studied Black arts when it as it pertains to poetry and writing as well, um, with my own independent studies, but specifically poetry. And so this this book, like it's it's the it's the Holy Grail, right? It is the it's what kicked all of this off, and it's such a powerful piece. And it is translated, okay? So, of course, it's not in the original tongue. I do not speak um, the language of 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years ago. I cannot say that. And so it is a translation. But even the translation, when you do your meditations and when you ask for the spirit of the intelligence of Edhuduanas, when you ask for that, Edhuduanas, it comes to you. For instance, her name. I was struggling with her name. Lord knows. Because um, it's E-N-H-E-D-U-A-N-N-S. And one day, I was sitting on the couch. And I heard it. I heard it in my head. And I was like, okay, that's about as close as this Texas girl going to get to saying it correctly. So, but, you know, you, you get what you ask for. So, so yeah. Um, we're going to go ahead and knock this out. So we're on chapter 10, which is the last chapter. It is uh, on the topic of the exaltation of Inanna. We've gone through the other two. You should have read the second poem on your own. And then the first poem I read aloud uh, about a month ago. So what we're going to do with this poem, I'm not, yeah, um, not going to read the poem simply because I actually want to read the commentary. So... You can find the poems online. They are free online. You can go to some of the universities, and they will have uh, the poem in their archives. But uh, Mama is cooking. I'm cooking. Um, and so let me go 
stir the pot right quick and put that on simmer. I know it's late night, but this is this is when I'm this is the chance that I get. So let me put on some quick music and um I don't know what this is. Let me see what this is, y'all. Hold on. Okay, no, I don't want to hear that. I thought it was something else. All right, give me just a hot second. I'll be right back. Another interpretation of the exaltation of Inanna, the last poem. And this is actually the author's, um, this is the author's synopsis. 
this is this is based on her research and her understanding of I mean, you know, the the, the beauty of um critiques and the beauty of commentary is that of course unless you wrote it, unless you were there, unless you experienced it, you really don't know. However, you know, you, you, you do the best you can with what you got, right? And so there is no wrong answer. I mean, there are some answers that are more right, <laughs> that's more precise and more um, relevant. However, in many ways, it's, it's, it's not. And so I like, I like some of this, and so I want to share it. So this is entitled, He Robbed Me of the True Crown. We're going to talk about that one one day, too, but not today. Okay. Enheduanna has been removed from her high office um, of high priestess by force, banished from Nana's temple at Ur. The story she tells appears actually to, uh-oh, hold on, y'all, let me make sure. Nobody's telling me they can't hear me. Okay. Um, the story she tells appears actually to have happened. A man named Lugalane or Lugalana, according to Halo and Van Jake, played a role in the great revolt against Naran's sin at Uruk. They find no reason to believe this was not the same person in the form. In Hedouanah's appointment by Sargon was an affront to the local priests. Perhaps her expulsion was the result, as Nisan contends. She is wretched, alone, a wanderer in the wild mountains, her clothing torn, her face covered with dust. He eats away at my life, she says. Her rage and anguish grow like a fetus forming in the damp inner chamber. Enheduanna swells with outrage at what has happened to her. She cries out to Inanna, and in the bitter pangs of a figurative pregnancy forced upon her, she gives birth to a poem. She prays in the dark of night to her goddess. Anguish minds the forced stretching to the edge of endurance, the tearing pain of birth, suffering bitter pains. I gave birth to this exaltation for you, my queen. And Hedouanah uses the metaphor of birth to describe the process of conceiving the word, a convention found in other Sumerian texts. For example, the later king, Gadea, who conceived or received the notion of building the temple of Ningarasu in a dream. These verses contain a unique description of the creative process of the poet, unparalleled in Mesopotamian literature. In Hedouanah says she spoke to her goddess in the night, a familiar time of creative inspiration. She may have had a revelant dream. She was certainly qualified to be her own dream interpreter, as Halo and Vanjik attest. The poem must match exactly the cosmic situation, must include all the elements. Then, like a poultice, it will draw out the poison and heal the wound. Enheduanah will return to her rightful place in harmony with the natural order that Lagunalane La, La has upset. Lagunalane's daring overthrow of Enheduanah is the ominous sign of things to come. The usurper is cruel. He has entered her rooms. 
He mocks the dearest source of her being, her poetry. He spits in his hand and smears her mouth. He defiles the sweet honey tongue. He jabs at her with the sacred dagger of mutilation. He says, it becomes you. He seems to be saying, use it on yourself. You know how the eunuchs do it. Cut out your own sex. He would have her sexless. He would put her he would pull her from the pure holy bed of the sacred marriage, ban her from that ritual axis around which the year turns. He casts her out. He has effectively undone all that Enheduanah created. He may even have assaulted her sexually. First he silences her voice. He wipes his spit-soaked hand on my honey-sweet mouth. Enheduanah's most effective means of teaching was her poetry and religious song. He spits on it. His hatred of her honey-sweet mouth muffles the outpouring of her creative genius. Not only that, but he tramples her beautiful image under dust. Enheduanah, who created the role of high priestess as poet, a model followed for 500 years after her death, is defiled by the brute force of a usurping man. He invites her to mutilate herself with the ritual dagger in the manner of the androgynous devourishes, Kurgara, adding insult to injury, as Halo and Vanjuk observe, the ritual knives of the temple belong to the priestly attendant, the Kuragara. Self-mutilation, Parabola says, was widely practiced not only in Mesopotamia, but all over the ancient Near East, and illustrates the tremendous power that the cult of Ishtar, Inanna, exerted upon its initiates. Lagalune asked Enheduanna to bloody herself in vicious ways not related to the sacred blood of menstruation. He wants her sexless. He wants her blood desecrated. He taunts and teases and conjoles her to turn the ritual knife on herself. He spits on her poetry. He befouls the ritual dagger. Then, again and again, he throws a hateful verdict in my face. And Hadulana is reduced to begging this treacherous man for justice. He responds with hateful, vindictive judgments against her. Ultimately, he drives her from the temple. She is no longer allowed in her room, her intimate space in the Gepar. She is cast among the dead in the marginal wastelands of graves and tombs. He whisks her away like swallows swept from their holes in the walls. She wanders alone in the thorny brush of the mountains. She has lost everything, her triumphant stature as high priestess, her true crown. She cries out in utter hopelessness and despair. In the wretching pangs of hard labor, she gives birth to the entry in treachery. She gives birth to this in treachery to Inanna. Inanna is her only hope for rescue. Armed men probably accompanied Lagalane in his overthrow of Enheduanna. Such men were not new to her. Enheduanna had watched her father, her brothers, and nephews send armies to foreign lands and return victorious. Lagalane was apparently an enemy of Narun Sins, trying to gain prominence in the southern provinces of Sumer. Ur and Iraq 
had traditionally formed an alliance, and Laganule of Iraq, Aruk, attempted to free the provinces from the central rule of the Sargon dynasty. And Heduana, who may have served the temple in Iraq as well as Ur, would have lost her position in both cities. The dreadful consequence of Legolene's action was the desecration of the sacred precincts of the temples of En and Enena in Uruk as well as Nana in Earth. He defiled En. He robbed En of his temple. He does not fear big man En. The potent vigor of the place does not fill him. He spoiled its allure. Truly he destroyed it. Lagolene enacts some masculine power beyond even that of great Anne. If we remember Abyss, we know Anne's potency collapsed before the radiance of the mountain. It had do makes clear in Abyss and in Lady of the Largest Heart that Inanna's power is greater than Anne's. In spite of the domination of men in the political and economic sphere at this time, the male god's superiority was, equiv- was equivocal clearly present in some myths and missing in others. In this poem, Anne again, again collapses in the face of a more powerful masculine presence, Legolene. Once again, the secular overcomes the sacred. A few figures of male gods have been found in Mesopotamia from the Neolithic period, but during this time, all divinities continue to exist as part of nature's great design. Ultimately, nature belonged to the goddesses, to the archetypal feminine, and to the teachings and ritual enactment of the women in the temple. In Enheduanah's thinking, Anne, too, existed within this paradigm. His masculinity, as Enheduanah points out over and over again, is subject to Enheduanah's superior command. As we learn in a bit, to overthrow the goddess is unthinkable. All creatures on earth and in the heavens are subject to nature's ebb and flow, to the constrictions of the laws of matter. To defy this fundamental reality, the carved-out ground place that Inanna wears on her robe is an act of appalling pride and insolence. Inanna will unleash all her forces in order to crush such an audacious rebellion. The goddess rules the masculinity of the gods, even Anne's. Among the priests, Phallic masculinity is tempered, sometimes by emasculation, sometimes by androgynous dress and behavior. Theirs is the ultimate act of defiance against the domination of the phallus, facilitating, as Roscoe says, escape from irreconcilable tensions by rendering oneself incapable of fulfilling either the social or sexual demands of patriarchal male roles. Parabola maintains that the purpose of these emasculating acts was to turn the devotee into a living image of Ishtar, an androgynous person totally beyond the passions of the flesh. Legolene enacts another sort of masculinity altogether. His attitude towards Anne's temple is this. The potent vigor of the place does not fill him. Legolene is no longer satisfied by Anne's potency in relation to the goddess. He brings an entirely new phallic power into the sacred precinct. Legolene attempts to carry out what Abid dared to dream, the overthrow of the goddess. His bearing is that of a man, no longer dominated by women or the forces of the archetypal feminine. Not only do his acts 
privilege the secular over the sacred, but his defiance of the goddess paved the way for the new masculinity of the ensuing monotheism of Judaism and Greek-influenced Christianity. The surge of phallic power that fueled Legolene's revolt, Sargon's conquest, and even the rise of kings in the 500 years prior to Sargon's rule represented a new force not apparent in the Neolithic cultures dominated by the nature-centered religions. This torrent of male libido ultimately could not be contained or controlled by religious taboos. Men tended to express this new freedom in two ways, through domination and creativity. Male dominance greatly increased as a result of the new weaponry made possible by the invention of bronze. This invention ushered in a new kind of military conquest. As they gained military power, men increasingly dominated the political sphere, economics, and social life. While Sargon was a lifelong devotee of Ishtar Inanna, the city goddess of Agade, his grandson, Narun Sin, declared himself a god, and on his stele of conquest, figure 19, wears the singular horned crown reserved for a deity. As male, domin- as male dominion of cultural life increased, the new freedom men enjoyed gave rise to a creative soaring of the imagination above the material plane. In classical Greece, the male mind reigned supreme, and with respect to the Romans, Marie-Louise von Frantz says, the phallus symbolized a man's secret genius the source of his physical and mental creative power, the dispenser of all his inspired and brilliant ideas and of his buoyant joy in life. Men have dominated the creative life of the mind in the centuries since the beginning of monotheism. Whatever factors brought this about, men's exercise of their physical strength and appropriation of their creative freedoms, part and parcel of the male-dominated culture, heralded an entirely new alignment of civilization, one in which their genius soared while women lost ground. By the 7th century BCE, all images of the goddess which had remained in the Hebrew temples were destroyed. In the process of monotheism development, women suffered a great loss. The essential role women had played in ancient religions as guardians who contained opposites diminished. Women's roles became marginalized and secondary to the roles of men, not only in the religious sphere, but also in the realms of politics, economics, social, and cultural life. Men are captive to the patriarchal ethos and suffer stifling limitations as a result. In his interpretation of the myth of Attis, the castrated son in the Sibyl and Attis myth, Roscoe describes the modern plight of many men. Attis is the ab- Attis is the object of unwanted. Like this is a quote. Attis is the object of one unwanted heterosexual overtures caught between the social demands of the pater familias and the emotional demands of a mother figure who is herself caught up in the dynamics of patrilineal sexuality and marriage. In polytheism, gender ambiguity is given a different valuation. 
and sexual tensions can be freely projected onto female deities. It is the combination of these two factors, patrilineal social order and polytheistic religion, that creates the ground for the long-term appeal of goddess figures and their priests. The underlying hostility of this act, self-castration, underscores the transgressive nature of being non-masculine and non-reproductive in a patriarchal culture, end quote. We who came of age within the basic assumptions of monotheism rarely think about how this paradigm infiltrates every corner of our psychological lives. It does not occur to us that our most entrenched values of good and evil, perfection and impurity, worthlessness, worthiness and corruption are strongly influenced by the splitting which male monotheism imposes on our socialization from birth. It takes a concentrated awareness to realize that this paradigm excludes all other possibilities and to convince and to conceive that our most fundamental presumptions could be different. Okay, I'm going to skip over to proclaim and then we are done. In the past 30 years, women have imagined a religion centered on goddess worship and have begun to reconstruct the myriad pieces of an actual ancient religion whose core was female. Now, we have a written articulation of one woman whose religious tradition reaches back to the Neolithic age. In the cultures of the Western world, dominant religions have perpetrated a silence that has surrounded us for 4,000 years. Now, Enheduanah's voice has broken that protracted silence. Archaeologists, 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 okay. <laughs> archaeologists have unearthed thousands of images of goddesses from Paleolithic, Neolithic, and the Bronze Age. Building on these findings, women are beginning to piece together a cultural past in which their place in society was vastly different than it is now. In ancient times, women's social status derived from a religion in which femaleness was distinctly defined and worshipped and in which their role was central. In Hedouanah's writing is a poetic description of the full range of femaleness. Her work was archetypal dimension, and therefore it does not portray any one woman. She gives us the whole complex range of possibilities that occupy the vast reaches of the unconscious. The unconscious depths are a vital source and may be tapped by women according to their needs and inclinations. In Hedouanah's poetry is an invitation to expand the definition of woman across the range her writing graphically depicts. In the exaltation, Enheduanah is cruelly thrown out of her quarters in the Gopar. She loses her position, her status, her influence. However, she does not lose her voice. She remains steadfast in her convictions. She calls on professional chanters to sing her song in the broad light of the day. She insists that Enana keep her promise to protect and support the high priestess. Ultimately, she is restored. We offer thanks to Enheduanah for all her gifts and join her in exaltation. O oh, maiden Enana, sweet is your praise. Selah, Selah, Selah. That's it, y'all. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, 
I felt that, and I'm, I don't want to go much into it because I'm not a crybaby. I am a crybaby, but I'm not a crybaby. But um, I felt that on a personal level, um, just to give you a little bit of information about me, um, I, I tend to say, I see, I've never been married, but I've been divorced. And, um, yeah, and so one day we'll go more into that. <laughs> I've never been married, but I've been divorced. But in many ways, um, I've experienced very similar um, what in and I went through on many different levels. And um, I'm just thankful that God is um, that God is uh, decided and accepted me as one of her children, and is restoring all that was taken from me. And uh, yeah, so just you know. When you need that pick-me-up right quick, especially the sisters, circle sisters, we all need that pick-me-up, go ahead and reach for your for your your Lady of the Largest Heart book and read some of her poems. This is based on a true story. It's a true, it's facts. It's facts. And you see how, you know, patriarchy came to, to dominate the world, how matriarchy was overthrown and overtaken. And it's crazy because... We are still arguing about um, the legitimacy of matriarchy, not even, you know, where it was, when it was. We're still arguing if it ever existed, and that alone is so problematic, the fact that we cannot accept that once upon a time, um, women held powerful positions, period. (laughs) Women held powerful positions position period and I'm all for you know I'm all for man and woman coming together and building a beautiful nation I'm so here for it I'm also here for women standing in their own right in their own sovereignty because you know people have their own ins and outs ups and downs people come and they go you know people do their own thing and um heaven forbid um heaven forbid women have to be completely dependent on men that's not okay in a perfect world where men were perfect, that would be perfect because everyone would play their role and do their parts. But this is not a perfect world. And so women do not need to be completely fully dependent on men because men are able to change their minds. They they have the right to change their minds. And if they choose to change their mind, um, that should not completely decimate a woman. Check. All right, y'all, next week, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do next week. But I do know that we will have um, Savannah Blue on for So Poetic. And we got Thanksgiving coming up. Y'all know we don't do Thanksgiving around here. Um, We will fellowship with our family, though, because that's what we do. However, we ain't playing them games with these people this year. We are past that point, y'all. So maybe we'll build on Thanksgiving. That might be a good idea for people who might not, you know, fully understand why, why we not playing them games and them Thanksgiving turkey, pilgrim, Indian games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, the shoe drive is still going on. New shoes, slightly used shoes, children's shoes, girls and boys. Keep them coming, keep them coming, keep them coming. Save the date. Nia Kwanzaa Boogie is going down December 30th. So excited! Looking forward to it, y'all. It's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fat. 
P-H-A-T. It's going to be off the chain. I'm excited. Um, every day is getting bigger and better. And um, I want you to be there and be a part of it and enjoy yourself. All right? Peace, family. That it would break me, take me off my course Fell, picked it up, realigned with the source Back on the horse like a diver I'm a survivor, victor, picture perfect Work it till it's your circuit Think it, speak it, claim it Secret, ain't it ancient Cadence, murder, fragrance Ultraviolet, how I speak when I'm silent Through my aura, borealis, aurora It's in the bloodline Liquid sunshine, the heart Know it and I'm doing my part Sometimes it's switching a blink like a glitch in the link of a chain. Stay off it before I lose, I'm a forfeit. No bowing to the corporate, the devil's in the pulpit. Applaud this flawless, spit gorgeous. Justice for the lawless, that real rawness. Breaking the mix, breaking the mix, breaking the mix. 